growing the business, working with an employee, uh, trying to break into a system where they're trying to block me or not allow me in. I'll take out a piece of paper, I take out my pen, I flip it over, and I still am old school. I still do my notebooks. I think there's something about pen on paper that you can't get with a keyboard. And I will not take the pen off the pad until that 45 minutes is up. And it's just focused thinking time. And what you'll find is the first five or 10 minutes, you're going to come up with the obvious things. And you write them down just to get them off. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Eric Cole. Uh, Dr. Cole, thanks for making time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. So you've, you've had a pretty interesting life. There's a number of these things I want to touch on, but as an entrepreneur, you've built companies in the tech business. You spent time at Lockheed Martin as the chief scientist, chief technology officer at McAfee, but written books, built courses. I think where I want to start with all this cybersecurity stuff is at the CIA. Can you tell us that story of, of how you got your job there and what you got to do? Absolutely. It was one of those things. This was in the 80s. And a friend of the family suggested that I major in computer science, because that's where the world is going. And I took their advice. So I'm in my second semester taking computer science courses. And I'm not really sure if that's what I wanted to do, because it was more like an engineering on steroids back then. And it's one of those things that has sort of been the hallmark of my life is listen to that voice inside you. And I remember sitting there Thursday afternoon in a programming class and something said, go to the co-op office, go to the co-op office. So I went that day to the co-op office and the lady looks at me going, funny thing you came today because tomorrow the CIA is recruiting on campus. They only come twice, uh, sorry, once every two years and you happen to get lucky. There's one more slot. Do you want the interview? So I said, absolutely. So I show up the next day. I, I'm a pretty boring guy, so I, I passed all their tests. They gave me the application, and then a year and a half later, I'm working at the CIA trying to secure, protect, and lock down their systems. I love it. Well, I think one of my stories that made me really interested in you is, can you talk about the meeting you were in where, you know, lowly GS, and for people who don't speak governmentese, that means a junior employee, but where lonely, lonely GSs were not supposed to raise their hand and bring things up. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I was almost going to go into that in my first story, but I figured I'd let you I'd let you take me where you want to go. So absolutely. At the at the CIA, if you've watched any of the Tom Clancy movies, there's something called the bubble. It, it looks like a big bubble. And it's the auditorium that host, houses about 3000 people. And we had an all hands meeting that had all the folks, the high end, the super execs. And I'm in the back and they're talking about this new technology, the Internet and that they're going to be launching these new tools over the internet. And I'm always curious and I'm always looking for hard problems. So I didn't know any better. Like you said, I was young and stupid and, and I raised my hand to ask a question. I still remember my boss was in the front row and she looks back and she's like doing the put your hand down. I thought she was <laughs> waving to me. So I'm waving back and I, I, I kept my hand up and they call on me reluctantly. And I asked a simple question that changed my life. And that's another hallmark that, that I always tell people is don't be afraid to ask questions. 
don't know all the answers, ask the right questions. And this is a perfect example. So I asked a simple question. And that question was, how do we know these technologies are secure? If we're putting them out on the internet, how do we know this? And they all look around and they go, Eric, thank you for volunteering to solve this problem. And I'm like, I wasn't volunteering. I was just asking a question, right? But, but that's what they do in the government. They delegate if you ask a really hard question. So I start researching this area of cybersecurity, and I found out there is no way to prove a system is secure. There is no way to lock down a system. And I remember talking to one person about cybersecurity, and he said those words that if you ever want me to solve a problem for you, use this word and I will guarantee I'll get you a solution. And that's the word impossible. He goes, Eric, it's impossible to secure the internet. It's impossible to make cyberspace safe. And I'm like, oh, let me add it, right? Because I love impossible problems. And that essentially took me on a journey where for seven years, I was a professional hacker for the CIA. So I was trained and basically for a living, I got to break in to all the computers around the world. And one of the things I will tell you is after doing it for seven years, it got boring because you could always get in. The offense always gets in. So then I decided to dedicate the rest of my life and my career when I left the CIA to making cyberspace safe because offense is easy, but defense is where you really make a difference in the world. Interesting. So in a case like that, what's the solution? Is it just you have computers that never connect to the internet or what's what do you do? The solution is quite simple. It's balancing risk. The, the problem that most people think is you can be 100% secure. So, so they believe if you put the right tech in place, you buy the right solutions, you hire the right people, you can have 100% security, but it's like health. Nobody is 100% healthy. Nobody is the perfect specimen. Everybody is going to get sick. So the way we focus our lives is not to say we're never going to get sick, but the reason why we exercise, take vitamins, we're careful is to minimize the frequency in which we get sick and the impact. And it's the same thing with cybersecurity. The goal is not to prevent all attacks. The goal is to go in and minimize the frequency and minimize the impact that it has on our lives. And you do that by asking two questions. Most people ask one question. What is the functionality? What is the benefit? What do I get out of it? And that's why people put Alexas in the house and they do this crazy stuff. But you want to ask the second question. What is the security risk and what is the exposure? And when I talk to most people and I say, do you realize Alexa is recording everything you're doing for two hours? Do you realize that device is listening in and that could be used as evidence against you in a court of law? All of a sudden, they go, wait a second. Now that I understand the risk and exposure, now the value and benefit is not that good to me. Now it's not worth it. And that's why many people, when they hear that second question or the answer, they disconnect Alexa from their house. So the trick with cybersecurity is balancing functionality and risk and always answer the two questions, what do I gain and what do I lose? I love it. You know, I want to I want to talk about the entrepreneurship side next because so many people don't see the clear path from government employee to successful entrepreneur. Can you tell us what the companies were that you built and sold? Uh sure. So the first one was TSGI, the Cytex Group Inc. 
And that's where I was a CTO of that company, a chief technology officer. And we sold that to Lockheed Martin for just under half a billion dollars. I think it was like 420 million, but, but who's counting at that point, right? So, so, so that one. And then I was also part of the McAfee team where I was also CTO, redesigned their entire product line. And we sold that to Intel for $2.3 uh, billion. And the real trick there is start with one customer. Start with making a dollar. I always have people when they look at my businesses now, I, I, I'm on my third company now that's doing very well, Secure Anchor. And I always have people go, how do you get to that point? And my son is in college and he wants to start a company. And I told his friends the same thing. Figure out how to make a dollar. And then if you figure out how to make a dollar, do it 10 times and make $10. Then do that 10 times to make $100, right? It's sort of the replication. So the first business was actually a government contracting business where we basically looked for hard problems, problems that were called impossible, that the big companies like Lockheed and Booz Allen and others didn't want to take on because it was too risky. And we took on those high-risk projects because we found that niche. And the cool thing about high-risk projects, you don't have to win at all of them. You just have to win one of them. It's sort of like investments, right? You just have to get it right a few of the times. And then my second company was all about products. And that was really understanding what customers want. And I asked a simple question when I met with our customers when I was redesigning our product line at McAfee. Simple question. What feature, if it was in our product and not the competitors, would cause you to switch over to our company? Simple question. And I'll tell you, they thought about it for a little bit, but they started telling me the feature. And then I would look at them and say, okay, so if I delivered that feature, would you then switch over from your current company to our company? And once they said yes, you got five or six of those. And basically the new feature paid for itself before you even built it. You know, it's so interesting what a simple solution that is and how often we just sit in our offices around the table and tell our business partners, oh yeah, people love this. I know they'll love it. And we spend all this time and effort on it without doing something as simple as talking to five customers, right? Exactly. One of my big mottos I've always lived by, and if my staff is listening to this, they'll laugh because I say it multiple times a day, let data drive decisions, not emotions. Because so many times I'll have my staff go, we have to do this or we have to do that, or I'm convinced this is going to work. And I'm like, show me the data. Show me the customer data. Show me the survey. Show me the information. Because so many times, in my opinion, companies fail because they make very emotional-driven decisions, and they don't actually check with the market, check with the customers, and let the data drive the decision. Now, of course, you want to make sure you have accurate data, right? but data is always better than emotions every day of the week. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about the business literature, the books that I love so much that talk about how great a business will be if you can find something valuable that either other people can't or won't do. You know, instead of trying to be better than the competition, trying to do something so different than the competition that you essentially have a monopoly for at least a while, and you can kind of become the king of that category, right? And, you know, you look at like Southwest Airlines back in the day, they didn't compete with Delta or whoever by offering better meals. In fact, they didn't offer any meal, right? They they tried to compete with driving. They say, we're, you know, we don't offer most of the things an airline does, but we'll get you to Texas cheaper than you, than you can drive there yourself, right? And nobody else with airplanes was trying to compete with them for that. And, and they really did extremely well, right? And so thinking about this, like ideas of how do we not do what everybody else is doing? 
I would love to talk about, you know, when you're when you're at the CIA and you're trying to hack in and people are people have put up these these certain ways to try to block you. I'm interested in any exercises or anything that you did to help yourself try to think in a completely new way to come up with a way around it that that hadn't been invented yet. So so a cu- couple of things. One is, and s- some people have heard of it and others haven't, but it's called thinking time. A- and it's where you actually spend time just brainstorming about a problem. So I actually have an hourglass on my desk. A friend gave it to me a long time ago and the sand in it lasts 45 minutes. And what I do is when I have a hard problem, whether it's growing the business, working with an employee, uh, trying to break into a system where they're trying to block me or not allow me in, I'll take out a piece of paper, I take out my pen, I flip it over, and I still am old school. I still do my notebooks. I think there's something about pen on paper that you can't get with a keyboard. And I will not take the pen off the pad until that 45 minutes is up. And it's just focused thinking time. And what you'll find is the first five or 10 minutes you're going to come up with the obvious things and you write them down just to get them off the plate. The next 20 minutes is about the hardest because you feel like you're up against a wall, but you just keep forcing. I mean, you put crazy things down there. I remember one time I was trying to break into a large bank and I even wrote down things like kidnapping the CEO's puppies. And I mean, just crazy stuff, right? Just, just get it down there. But the last 15 to 20 minutes is when that juice flows. To, to me, that's when you just start coming up with all these different ideas. And that's when you really start making that magic happen. Because most of the time, we're so busy executing, we don't give ourselves time to think. And I think our brains can solve any problem if we give them enough time to actually solve it. So on any given day, depending on how busy I am, my assistants always laugh, but I have anywhere from two to three hours blocked out every day just for thinking time. And I just put in the current problems that I'm having or dealing with in that. And I just spend 45 minutes focusing on a single problem. That's fascinating. You know, one of my favorite quotes, our listeners know I'm a real Warren Buffett nerd. And uh, there's this quote from him. He says, it's really not that hard to make money as long as you have eight hours a day to read and think. Yeah. And what you just said makes so much sense. You know, he's intentionally bought entire business systems that he doesn't need to run. So he's got that time to read, read annual reports, read the Wall Street Journal and be able to think uninterrupted about them for extended periods of time. And, you know, became the richest investor in the history of the world. Right. Why do you think why do you think so many of us don't do something as simple as that? Turn the phone off, turn the computer off you know, get all of our distractions and get to that like deep workplace of, of thinking time? I think a couple of reasons. One is we were never trained on that. Like I was never taught that in school. The professor never told me that. What, what as a society we tend to reward is working really long, hard days, right? The person who comes in at six in the morning and stays till 10 p.m. at night working like crazy, you know, I mean, tr- trying to be as busy as possible, produce, 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 tends to be who gets rewarded in society, right? If, if you're at the library at school until two in the morning, that seems to be like a badge of honor. And I personally think that's backwards. I- I'm one of those folks that I get anywhere between eight 
to 10 hours of sleep. If I'm, if I have a really busy, busy day where I'm just exhausted, I'll get sometimes nine hours sleep. I don't set an alarm clock. I get up when I'm rested. So I, I usually go to bed somewhere between nine or 10 and then I'll wake up anywhere between uh, six to eight when my body's ready. And I find putting more time into sleeping so my brain and my body's in an optimal condition and then spending two or three hours a day thinking and focusing, the five hours that I actually quote unquote work, I believe I get more done than most people do in 15 or 20 hours. So I'm a big fan of the quality over the quantity concept. I think if you rest, you exercise, you do thinking every day, and you have four to five hours of hardcore productive time, you're gonna get a lot more done than if you eat like crap, have 10 cans of Diet Coke or Monster Energy drink, get four hours sleep and work all day in the office. It's sort of a paradigm shift, but I've tried both, and trust me, the taking care of your body works a lot better for me. Yeah. You know, I would actually love to talk more about this. One of the things I want to talk about, and maybe we'll save this for the second half of the interview is, you know, we're trying to do things different. Our listeners know we're, we're at Greystoke. We're trying to build this different company where essentially we're building a big media company, Greystoke Media, where we're going to try and help as many entrepreneurs as we can actually make extra money so that they can afford to buy passive income from us from our real estate investment trust. Right. And that's just not the way it's done in the finance world, right? So we're kind of cutting some new path. And I think about I think about what you're talking about there, which to me, you know, you tell me if you see it differently, but it, to me it sounds a little bit like you're saying like the difference between measuring activity versus measuring progress. Is that would that be another way of saying it or or how would you say it differently? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good way of saying it. I usually use the word busy versus productive, mm. where but most people are very, very busy. And I'm sure you've seen the quadrant of urgent and important, mm-hmm. where you have the four, you have the four different overlays of that. And I find most people spend a lot of their time on either urgent and important, or the scary zone to me is urgent and unimportant. So what what I try to do is spend most of my time on important, but not urgent. I try to fix and address problems before they become a crisis, because when things become a crisis, you're not thinking rational, and you end up focusing a lot of energy on low priority items. Yeah. So I think my first question there is, you know, we are not doing the traditional route where we're trying to get one big pension fund to give us you know, to give us a couple billion at a time, right? Or trying to get the Saudi investment authority to give us $20 billion, like they give Blackstone, right? We're trying to get large numbers of entrepreneurs to give us some money, right? And I think about, you know, all of that customer information that we've got, personal personal data, besides just, you know, the financial assets of every month when we get the rent from the renters, and then it's got to go out to, uh, it's got to go out to all these, shareholders of the trust, right? There's the the financial vulnerabilities, but I think about the reputational vulnerability. If we end up with thousands or tens of thousands of, of investors over the years, so as I go through and sort through cybersecurity experts and and different providers to try and make decisions for that, you know, kind of, again, back to Warren Buffett, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it, Right. What kind of principles would you give me as we're picking experts and, and technologies to depend on? First one is you definitely, when you're looking at cybersecurity, and you're right, I call cybersecurity the silent killer. 
it's one of those things you can ignore it, but at some point it could take out your entire business. I've seen companies that have been 50, 60, 70 million, and they've had their entire database of customers compromised. They've lost all credibility with their customer base and they pretty much go under within six to eight weeks. So cybersecurity is easy to ignore, but at some point it's gonna get you and it could be one of the biggest killers of your business. So the first thing is you wanna make sure they're taking a risk-based approach. Because as I mentioned, everything with security is about balancing risk. It's not just about what is the functionality or benefit, it's about asking that second question. And I was gonna leave this out for time, but since you're a big Warren Buffett fan, I'll put this in there. Uh, The way I've always done security is by asking those two questions. What is the value or benefit? What is the exposures or risk? And then asking yourself, can you live with the risk? Can you live with that exposure? And I love reading. I read two to three books a week. And last year I read Warren Buffett's books and I realized that's his investment strategy. That's how he invests. He looks at what is the upside? What is the downside? And then says, can you live with the downside? That's why Warren Buffett hates cyber currency and Bitcoins because the upside is huge, but the downside is gigantic. You can lose everything. So to me with cybersecurity, it's about looking at the downside. When you're making decisions, you want to say, here's the functionality and value. Yes, we could make $5 million, but the risk is we can lose the entire business overnight. Is that risk worth it? And then making decisions, looking at the risk, not looking at the value, because so many people, especially startups and entrepreneurs, you dangle dollar bills in front of them and they'll jump through hoops and jump off mountains, but they never step back and say, is the risk worth the reward? <laughs> yeah, he, he is famous for his margin of safety investment yeah. methodology, isn't he? Well, so as I, you know, I'm out there, I'm interviewing different consultants Right. And I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I really am feeling the, you know, feeling the dread of how everything could collapse after all our hard work. Right. I'm asking myself those questions. What, what else, what other kind of guidance would you give me of, you know, let's say that somebody is, they're looking at secure anchor, your company, or these, or these other folks who claim to do something similar what are some of the questions you would encourage them to ask your competitors? So, so the first question, it's a setup question, is can you make me 100% secure? And if the company says yes or absolutely, grab small children and run. Do not walk to the nearest exit because that's the biggest setup. There are some of these companies out there that just want your money and they're going to make false promises to you. If any security company claims they can make you 100% secure, they're lying to you. They're either lying to you or they don't know what they're talking about. So that's the first question I always ask. That's sort of the weeding out question. The second one is, what is the commitment you need from me and my company in order for us to be secure? Because it goes down, I can give you the most secure car on the planet, but if you're not a safe driver, and you don't go in and operate in a safe manner, you can still get killed in that safe car. And and then the third thing is what is most important? When you're looking at our security and you're going in to lock us down, what is the most important thing to you? And the answer you want to look for there is your critical data. 
A lot of companies take threat-based approach where they're going to say, well, we're going to look at the threat or we're going to look at the market or we're going to look at all these other components. That's not what will put you out of business. It's what you said. If your customer database, if your critical data gets compromised, that's going to be the impact. So you then want to go in and ask what's their approach to security and you want a data-driven approach. And then another question you want to go in and ask them is, will they do an incremental approach? So a lot of times you'll go in, it might be 100K to perform a full assessment. That might be too much. So they're willing to do incremental where they do work uh, quarterly or monthly for you. And, And once again, the really good companies that believe in their service, I know that if I get my foot in the door with a client, even if they're giving me 10K a month, I'm going to deliver such amazing service. Not only will they keep using me, but they'll recommend us to other friends. So you want to have somebody that's going to work with you as a partner and not just trying to get your money and leave. I love it. Well, I think it's a good part to break for for episode one. Everybody, please tune back into episode two. Before we go, besides going to secure-anchor.com, if people want to find out more about you and your books and, and what you're thinking about lately, can you tell us about your podcast and where they connect with where they can connect with you on social? Sure. So on social media, my handle in almost all platforms is Dr. Eric Cole, D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E. Just no spaces, no periods, D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E. And you can also look up Cyber 911 is the podcast. Uh, where we talk about cybersecurity, business, and how it can impact organizations. Yeah, I love it. Okay, everybody, please tune in to part two. Thanks so much.